Revelation 21 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the Lord Jerusalem, coming down on earth. season starts, I will DVR the Chiefs games so that I can be fully present here without worrying about football. Now that is usually a good strategy because that enables me to keep first things first, but still enjoy watching a team that I was rarely able to watch while serving the Lord in the wilderness known as Wisconsin. A couple of weeks ago, I watched the classic Harrison Ford movie, Air Force One. In that movie, the president gives a speech in a foreign country at the same time that his favorite college team is playing. 
And as soon as he boards Air Force One, he asks the crew to pipe the game to his private quarters. But just as the game comes on the television in his private quarters, one of the stewards walking down the hall says, Way to go, President! How do you think Michigan did? As his shoulders begin to droop, viewers see the disappointment with good news that comes from a well-intentioned fan, but it took all of the suspense away from the president watching the game. There is something of a letdown when the outcome is known in advance. So I have to turn off all of my social media when I DVR the games, or well-intentioned friends will erase my suspense. On the other hand, I have a close friend, he was best man at our wedding, who is a fan of a basketball team at a university to remain nameless in Lawrence, Kansas. A week ago, he was at home as his wife was out doing something with the family, and he wanted something to feel good about. So he watched the second half of the last championship game. And then he celebrated on Facebook about how good he felt about that team that Brother Bruce Wells also loves so deeply. Knowing the outcome of a game may remove suspense, but it can also bring great joy in the midst of our current struggle. Likewise, God has chosen to give us a glimpse at the final score so that we will be encouraged to stay in the game right now. Today's text does just that. We are reminded that what Jesus did in the past makes him worthy to slay the dragon in the future so that we will increase our obedience and our fellowship right now. When I look at the beginning of Revelation 21 that was read for us a few moments ago, I see that God provides a new paradise. Because the way things are right now will pass away. And he will bring a new heaven and a new earth. The description of this new earth follows, as we would scan ahead a little bit to verse 11, we find that this new paradise... (coughs) excuse me, is a beautiful place. It is described in the last part of verse 2 as a bride adorned for her groom. It's described in verse 11 as a place that is radiant with glory. When I thought about a city being radiant, in my mind, I was taken to Christmas time. When the white snow gently falls and reflects all of the beautiful lights, you kind of see a glow and a radiance 
upon our community. I believe that is the radiance, the beauty of a bride adorned for her bridegroom. But this is not only a beautiful place. This new paradise is also a huge place. Now, at the risk of someone misunderstanding and thinking that I am saying the new Jerusalem is somehow based in the United States, let me clearly state I am about to give you a size comparison, not a suggested location. I believe that Jesus is going to come down and he will possess during the millennium reign in Jerusalem, and then there will be a new Jerusalem, and I in no way want you to think that this is based upon the United States of America. However, for size comparison, imagine one city that reaches from South Padre Island, where the hatchers winter, travels up the eastern range of the Rockies north, past Mount Rushmore, goes all the way over to the east to Niagara Falls, and then all the way down south to the tip of Florida. That is the estimated size of this new city. Do you think that city is capable of including all of Los Angeles, all of Chicago, all of Dallas, all of Atlanta, all of New York City, all of Beijing, all of Seoul, South Korea. I see a huge city that is prepared coming down to us. A new city is going to come, but I have also learned that new is not always better. Some of the recent sports arenas that have been built, new arenas for existing teams, have been a new arena come to a city. But some of them have been described as spaceships and toilet bowls. So new is not always better. However, in the case of this new paradise, it is an improvement on the current earth. And it is an improvement because paradise is a place of God's presence and a place of purity. I look at verses 3 through 8, and I see that this new paradise is the dwelling place of God. I like the word dwell. The word dwell literally has the idea of pitching a tent. So it's not necessarily a permanent dwelling, but it is a place where we stop, where we rest, where we enjoy the presence of the people around us. It's a place that we make into a home. Paths are made for journey, but dwelling is made to abide. And this tells us that the new city is a place where God will abide with his people. He will have his presence manifest so that he is our God and we are his people. When I contrast a path 
to a campsite, I also think of houses. Houses speak of shelter, but homes? Homes communicate hospitality, a dwelling that focuses upon the people. See, dwellings can be either a tent, a cabin, a resort, or a palace. But whenever we use the word a dwelling, the emphasis is always upon the occupants, the people that dwell within that building. And verse 3 tells us that heaven will be in, or that the new earth and new heaven will be an improvement upon the current earth because God himself will dwell in presence with his people. It is his dwelling place. It's a place that I see, a place in verse 4 of restoration, where God says, I will wipe every tear from their eyes. Pain be removed. And when I imagine someone full of pain so that they have tears running down their eyes, and Jesus says, I will wipe those tears away because there will be no more pain. It's a beautiful place of restoration. Right now, our walk on earth is often struggled. It is often challenging. It is full of joys and and, and struggles at the same time. But he says in the future, where he dwells, it's a place of restoration. It's a place where there is remedy for the thirst. There's something inside of us that yearns for more. We want a better world. We want a better relationship with God. We want to know him better. And it says in verse 6, Come to me, any of you who have thirst, and you will be satisfied. We come without money because he is eager to remedy our thirst. I think of thirst and I go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Why? They will be filled. And God offers to us in this future place a remedy for thirst. He also offers a removal of all the cowards in verse 8. Now, I read this yesterday and I, I think cowardice is really an unusual way to describe evildoers. Why is it that Jesus tells John to write that it's a place where all the cowards will be removed? See, cowards refers to the two ways explained by Christ. Christ says that there is a wide road and there is a narrow path. Wide is the road and many are those who travel it that leads to destruction. If you take the easy way where everybody else is going, that's cowardice. On the other hand, there is a narrow path that leads to light and few are those who find it. And verse 8 says... Heaven is an improvement on this current life because all those cowards who want the easy way that everybody is doing, they are taken away. So that those who are known as conquerors make up the citizenship of this new Jerusalem. Notice with me, skipping ahead a little bit, and then we'll come back. 
verses 24 through 27 of chapter 21, where, where I see it's a place of wholesome activity. The kings are bringing in things. The citizens are bringing in things. Notice there is no mention of clouds and harps and wings. It's, it's a place of activity. It's, it's, it's a place where, where trade is happening, where busy things are going on. But all of these busy things are things that are wholesome. They're not evil activities. They're not deceptive activities. I see activity that is all bringing glory to God. Imagine with me a place bustling with activity, but no conflict. Because verses 9 through 14 tells us that this new paradise is a place of peace. Why do I say it's a place of peace? Because it's a place where there is no more sea. As we look back to the first verse of the chapter. Because you will know, or you will be reminded, or you may learn for the first time, that in ancient literature, seas spoke of the torrent of calamity. The sea is where bad things happen. And he says there will be no more seas. See, we here in the Flint Hills are familiar with wind. We are familiar with floods. But run through your mind all the times that Jesus taught his disciples surrounding the sea. The sea was a place of sudden storms. It was a place of frustrating fishing. We've been out here all night. Why should we go back? It was a lifestyle that Jesus called them to leave. And so if the sea is a place of calamity, a place of disaster, a place of torrent, we look in chapter 1 and we read that in the new paradise, there is no more sea. There is no more calamity. It's a place where his peace rules. We also see that in this new paradise, this new heaven, this new earth, we are united as one people of God. Jews and Gentiles together as one people of God. Verse 12 tells us that each gate was inscribed with one of the tribes of Israel, God's special relationship with the Jewish people. And the middle part of verse 14 tells us that each foundation of each of the four walls was inscribed by the names of the New Testament apostles. Now, if you are astute, and I know most of you are, you may be saying to yourself right now, but pastor... The apostles were Jews too. How can you say this is a place of unity of Jews and Gentiles if the Old Testament Jews and the New Testament Jews, if it's both talking about the Jews? Well, I believe we see one people of God come together because while the Old Covenant talked about God's special relationship with the descendants of Abraham, the apostles, the 12 that are mentioned on the foundations, or were those who were sent out to all peoples. 
that God was inviting all to come and to experience his blessing. As we will see in our next sermon series, beginning in two weeks, we will look at the book of Acts and see how the apostles were sent out where they proclaimed Jesus Christ to everyone. What's the next part? Everywhere. Starting here. I just have to keep reminding you every once in a while that our, our annual theme is God is calling us to present Christ to everyone, everywhere, starting here. See, that's the message of the apostles. And so that's why I can say there is one people of God experiencing peace that no longer do the Jews hate the Gentiles. No longer do the Gentiles hate the Jews, but they are one people of God represented in both the gates and the foundation. Peace is only possible where we exist under the protection of a godly ruler. And because God rules, the new paradise is a place of peace, unlike anything that we experience now. Not only is paradise a place of presence and purity, not only is it a place of peace, but I also see that paradise is a place of protection. It's a place of tall walls that have no gaps, and large, abundant gates. Think with me first about these tall walls in verses 17 through 20. These walls are 144 cubits height. A cubit was the length from the elbow to the fingertips, about 18 inches. If you take 144 forearms, it's around 210 feet tall, or 20 stories tall. We read here about a stadium, that, that the uh, distance was 12,000 stadia. A stadion was about 607 feet. So the four walls in verse 16 would be about 5,500 miles in circumference around the city. Now, the length of these walls, 5,500 feet. The entire Mexico-U.S. border is less than 2,000 miles. So any fence in America is minute compared to what John sees here. A huge city reaching from West Texas to the tip of Florida, up to Niagara Falls, over across the north of um, Rushmore. A huge city surrounded by 20-story walls. Now, in comparison, the Berlin Wall was 13 feet tall. The fence around our White House is 13 feet. Prison fences with chain link and razor wire are about 15 feet tall. The Great Wall of China, 26 feet. 
And the southern border wall in our country at its tallest part is about 30 feet. So the wall that we see here, these tall walls, 20 stories, 210 feet, compared to 30 feet in walls that we consider significant. Now, it would be futile for me to attempt to describe each stone that is used in the foundations of the walls. Allow me to summarize by simply saying there is a variety of stones, and all of them are brilliant. Why does he mention that there are jewels in the foundation of the walls that surround the new city? It's because jewels in ancient time were taken as plunder of war. So these jewels speak to the victory of the lamb, the victory of The lamb will achieve victory over his enemies, and as a victor, the jewels are evidence of victory. Jewels are also an indication of wealth. During the tribulation, the beast will hoard for himself the riches of the earth. But in the new earth, God will have possession of all wealth. And so we see beautiful, expensive jewels, that show him to be the victor and the holder of all wealth. And as we look at these 20-story walls reaching 5,500 miles, it's also important for us to realize that there are gates. Now, these gates were no mere water gap. The word that John uses here for gate is the word pylon. It indicates something impressive like the tall gate in front of many of our ranches. There are walk-through gates, there are water gaps, and then there's the tall gate. And this word pylon speaks of the tall gate. Notice in verse 13 that there are three gates on each side of the city. In verse 21, each of these huge gates is made out of a single pearl. And so I see the mother of pearl radiance of the colors of this large gate. But look with me at verse 25. These gates are never closed. So now wait a minute, preacher. You've just talked about a 20-story wall that reaches 5,500 miles, but you've just said that there are 12 gaps in the wall. How secure is a city that has three entry points on each side? Notice with me verse 12. Each one of the gates is guarded by a heavenly messenger who is more reliable than any customs and border patrol agent that we could put in a gap. And yes, there is access to the city, but the angels guarantee who has access so that there is no evil that is allowed into this new paradise. Skipping quickly into the beginning of the next chapter, though, we also see that this paradise is a place of provision, a place where God provides for his people. The first verse and a half of chapter 22 tell us of a great river, If the sea was an analogy for the tempest, rivers 
were a source of blessing. In July, Ann and I had the opportunity to drive through western Kansas and eastern Colorado to Colorado Springs. And the flatlands of eastern Colorado were brown and dry. But I noticed there were many, many train trestles across what appeared to be dry riverbeds. Why, if the land is so brown and dry, do they have these elevated train trestles? I imagine it's because the spring melt of the mountain snow is carried by rivers to the flat eastern farmland. And just as the season of river allows wells to be filled and parched earth to receive relief from this snow melt, the river that flows from the throne of God distributes his blessing to his people. The river starts at God's throne and it carries his blessing throughout the city. So if a sea is calamity, a river is a source of refreshing and renewal as he provides. I also see in the next verse and a half that this beautiful river is next to a luscious tree. Now, I was intrigued to read briefly about the Koch's recent trip to Belize. And Susan wrote about some of the plants and their medicinal uses. Notice with me what Revelation 22 says. They ate the leaves as a healing for the nation. Also, my grandmother's second husband had some, after she was widowed by my grandfather, had some unique hobbies in his retirement. One of Grandpa Chuck's hobbies was that he would graft branches from one fruit tree into the limbs of another fruit tree, which meant you could go to his orchard and see trees that produced two different types of fruit. And I thought one tree producing two different fruits was pretty amazing. You could reach on this branch and get an apple, and you could reach on this branch and get a pear. And we know that pears and apples do not come ripe at the same time, do they? But we read here in the tree of life, it doesn't produce one type of fruit. It doesn't produce two types of fruits. It produces 12 types of fruit throughout the year. Now, this tells me that these fruit trees are continually in the process of both blossoms and mature fruit. I have found that my tomato plants, and since this is the first year I've ever raised tomatoes, some of you have been following my journey on raising tomato plants. My four tomato plants have both mature fruit and yellow blossoms at the same time. And those yellow blossoms become green fruit. Eventually, if I can keep the birds away, become mature fruit. And while my plants have both blossoms and fruit at the same time, I see here that God says there is a tree that not only will its leaves bring you healing, but it produces 12 different types of fruit 
over the entire year so that there is always something in the process from blossom to mature fruit. It's a place that God provides abundantly in the new paradise. And finally, I see that God himself permeates the new paradise. In verses 4 through 5, we read that there's no need for a sun or moon because God himself is there. And God's glory fills the entire place with Dating Isaiah can be difficult for us to understand what he's saying and what he means by it. Some believe that Isaiah is so specific, it had to have been written after the Babylonian captivity, during the time of Nehemiah and Esther, or Nehemiah and Ezra. However, I believe the 74 references to Hezekiah, Sennacherib and Assyria indicate that Isaiah was written a hundred years before the Babylonian captivity in 740 to 700 BC. And that the precision of Isaiah can be attributed to the divine author who knew exactly what would happen. Isaiah witnessed the collapse of the northern kingdom to Assyria. He prophesied the coming fall of the southern kingdom to Babylon for their disobedience. But after both of these, Isaiah believed Israel would be reestablished. And so he wrote in chapter 60, verse 19, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. What I don't believe they fully understood was that Israel would only be partially restored after Babylonian rule. And they would not achieve this full fulfillment of the Lord replacing the sun and moon, not during Jesus' first coming, but after the tribulation, in his second coming, after the millennial reign, we eventually see God himself being the light of the entire paradise. And the reality that there is a coming paradise is told to us so that we would have hope in our obedience and in our fellowship with God right now. Jesus gave John a glimpse into the future and told him to write it down so that we would not give up. We would remain faithful because a brighter day is coming. There is coming a day when the God of eternity will be present in every corner, in every nook, in every cranny of a new heaven and a new earth. But God is not going to force you into that paradise. You have the opportunity right now to express your intent. Have you ever been forced into the company of a person 
or persons that you didn't want. It may have been that aunt who pitches your cheeks and says you're so cute. It may be that uncle who tells corny jokes that nobody thinks are funny except him the first 30 times he told them. See, sometimes we are forced into the presence of those we don't really want to be with. But when it comes time for eternity, God will not force you into his presence. The glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you can either be with him or away from God, however you choose. If you want to be with him, he offers his grace and his forgiveness to all who will repent of sin and call upon his name. If you wish to be away from God, you simply have to refuse to call upon him and just keep doing life your way. There are some people who wish to distance themselves from God. They don't want to submit to his authority. They believe they can do life better themselves. And the lake that burns forever is where they will get exactly what they don't want to be around God, they go to the lake that burns forever, and they won't have to deal with God. They won't have to acknowledge God at all. They won't have to put up with his mercy. They won't have to endure his goodness. They simply get to live out the life they've always wanted, opposed to God. On the other hand, There are people who desire to know God better. There are people who desire a life that would be lived in accordance with His will. There are people that dream of closer fellowship with our God. The people that never tire of deepening our faith in His goodness, His grace, His forgiveness. And these people will get exactly what they long for as well. When I am near the dear Lord I adore, it will through the ages be glory for me. Stand with me as we sing two verses of that great hymn. As we each declare, I want to be with God or away from God.